Stalk Talks podcast brings you intelligent discussion of topical issues inspired by the international city of peace and justice. I think we all know what we need to do. Problems, they come like a costume. They fit you. Remove our inner critic and open our inner, you know, curiosity. You know, nothing speaks louder than money. Walk in, slam your fist on the table, so... (laughs) Yeah. Together, <laughs> something has to change. Welcome back to another episode of Stalk Talks. I'm Tom, and I'm Zoe. The fourth of May, 1940, is the official day on which the Dutch were liberated from German occupation. This day precedes the fifth of May, known here in the Netherlands as Liberation Day. Here in the Netherlands, we celebrate our freedom just once a year. But perhaps we take this freedom for granted. In other ports of the world, brave men and women are fighting for freedom on a daily basis, often risking their lives in the process. Indeed, this week's episode of Stalk Talks, we take time to celebrate the inspirational people who we have had the privilege of interviewing about their fight for freedom on our show. Freedom comes in many shapes and forms, but it is ultimately about our right to choose. We focus today on four brave men and women who live in The Hague or have spent time here in their pursuit of justice. They come from all four corners of the globe, including Europe, Asia and the Middle East. Absolutely, Zoe. And let's start with Raki Up, who is based here in the Netherlands. He is a Dutch citizen, although his parents are originally from New Guinea. I met Raki through his work with Extinction Rebellion and yet it soon became clear that he is a man of many talents, as he plays a central role in the Free West Papua movement. Yes, Tom, I recall that we spent some time researching the history and geography of East and West Papua. It's perhaps a lesser known part of the world. Now, together, these two form the island of New Guinea, which is currently part of Indonesia. But it was a Dutch colony for over 300 years, and it was known as the Dutch East Indies. At the end of the Second World War, it became Dutch New Guinea, and the idea was to move toward independence for this small island. But just a year after gaining that independence from the Netherlands in 1961, an agreement was signed between the old colonists and what are now the new ones, making Papua New Guinea a province of Indonesia. And I think that Raki's words sum up quite nicely the the real emotional impact of this experience for him and of course his family. But a year later in 1962 the Dutch were forced under huge international pressure by the United States in front and they signed an agreement with Indonesia in the headquarters of uh, the United Nations in New York without the consultation of any West Papuans their future was decided uh, between the Netherlands and Indonesia and since then West Papua was colonized by another colonizer, which we know as Indonesia. And since then, the killings and intimidations of indigenous West Papuans started. And that is the way I lost my father, was an anthropologist. And nowadays, we are campaigning about what is happening there. I think what stands out to me the most, Zoe, is the fact that, like you mentioned, is there was a sign-over from the old colonizers to the new colonizers without the involvement, like Raki said, of the inhabitants themselves. It is, it is as if their freedom has been decided without consulting the people whose freedom it actually concerns. I agree, Tom. It is 
by modern standard standards, it's uh, it's shocking and also interesting and and worrying that indeed it, the whole thing was overseen by the United Nations, uh, who we would normally associate with perhaps protecting the rights of individual countries to to decide their own futures. And I think what's interesting, because you mentioned, like, it, it seems like a long time ago, but it was 1961. So it hasn't been that long. Um, so so it really is is still fresh in the memory of many of these people who fight for their freedom. So continuing on to the goal of Raki specifically, um, it is to raise awareness, uh, raise awareness for the plight of West Papua. He hopes to lobby the Dutch government for their support in putting West Papua back on what he terms the decolonization list. And part of Raki's approach includes traveling around the Netherlands and giving guest lectures at schools and universities in order to raise awareness of the shared history of the land of his birth and his adoptive country. But Raki was surprised by what he found. Since I actually started to travel around, around the country since three years ago, I was asked to give guest lectures at high schools and universities and I was actually stumped that even history teachers and university teachers didn't know anything about what is happening in West Papua. And I think this is exactly the problem within institutions, right? If history teachers aren't aware about their own, our shared history, I should say, how can students know about what is happening in West Papua and that it is a former colony? So I think the most important thing for me as campaign is really bringing back our shared history into the Dutch history curriculum. I think that's the biggest challenge. I really admire um, the quiet courage and persistence of Raki, uh, Tom, in the face of what is, again, a surprising apparent ignorance regarding, as he called it so so appropriately, the shared history of West Papua and, and of course, the Netherlands. And I think it's gained special prominence if we bear in mind that it, there's been more recent developments in West Papua, uh, reports of widespread killings of native West Papuans by Indonesian forces. This in turn has sparked a guerrilla response from the West Papans. And I think the situation has been made worse by the discovery of minerals in the region, which means, of course, that it's become much more valuable to Indonesia as a province uh, and therefore calls for independence are less and less welcome. Journalists and independent organizations like Amnesty International have not been allowed into West Papua to report on the situation, but there have been accusations of genocide made. Yet through through all of this, Raki remains positive. But we are really optimistic seeing that the global support in the Pacific region, the Pacific Island Forum have unanimously uh, called for a UN a human rights fact-finding mission to West Papua this year, supported by 97 other countries within the African and Caribbean state parties. So this is the optimism and the momentum which gives the West Papuans a lot of confidence. And we got support from religious leaders, from local politicians, from students, women, women leaders. So this is really a, a moment of hope, even with that the situation is very difficult. Absolutely. Are you hoping that the Dutch government will, will join in that, that request? Yes. The, my, my, my main goal here in the Netherlands as citizen of The Hague, uh, the so-called international capital of peace and justice, I'm holding the Dutch government and other politicians here in the Dutch parliament accountable for the moral responsibility they should take on West Papua. As former soldiers served in the Dutch army, they are saying that they are fighting for peace and justice in Afghanistan. How is it possible that they are looking away 
from the promised freedom uh, they promised West Papua and former Dutch I think it's an incredibly powerful statement that he makes where he says, I'm holding the Dutch government responsible and I hope that uh, in the future we can look back on this recording and confidently say that the Dutch have taken their responsibility and perhaps that progress has been made towards the, the promised freedom of, of the West Papuans. Absolutely, Tom, absolutely. We move on to the fight of Mila Kilam for the right to choose. I'm referring, of course, to the protest we covered here in The Hague by a group of Polish activists who were protesting the changes to abortion law in Poland. These laws can make it even more difficult for women in Poland to have an abortion. And the situation is further complicated by the fact that the lack of independence of the Polish judiciary means that contesting such laws in court is difficult. Yes, Tom, I think many uh, of us here in Europe have watched the Polish ruling party, the Law and Justice Party, they're, they're called, become increasingly rigorous in their curtailment of rights for both women and the LGBTQ community. And this has caused them to come into conflict, of course, with the European Union, because membership of the European Union requires the protection of individual and minority rights, irrespective of gender, race or religion. So Miller just explained to us a little bit about the consequences of the curtailment of freedom for women in Poland. This judgment was a result of coordinated, systematic wave of attacks on women's human rights made by Polish lawmakers. And uh, we already had the most severe abortion law uh, among uh, the countries of European Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, which now make us, you know, the, like really the worst one, the worst one. And it already causes a lot of uh, tragedies and deaths of women who uh, are stuck there because they can't get uh, help. For two last years, the, the hospitals were denying the abortions based on the three cases where it was already allowed. Yeah? So those women were, were forced to travel to other countries if they could afford it. So in the end, those poor women, they, if they couldn't, they end up tragic situation of, you know, um, where their health or life jeopardized. What I find so worrying about this, Zoe, is the fact that the rights that many of us in Europe uh, take for granted and for whom many have fought long and hard, that they can be so easily changed or repealed. I think it sort of highlights the fact that the rights and freedom can never be taken for granted and that we must defend and practice our rights on a daily basis. On that note, you also asked Mila what she thinks that the EU can do to support Poland in its fight for democratic values. Well, I think that uh, they already did that when uh, some of the cities declare uh, LGBT-free zones and they just uh, took away, stopped the funding, yeah, sending the funding. And I think that, you know, nothing speaks louder than money, right? Sadly, so I no. Think, yes, well, then, then people have a tendency to be more flexible, right? <laughs> uh, so so I think that, I yes, I think that a European Parliament could actually do a, a, exactly the same which uh, probably will help the protesters to get even more arguments against uh, the ruling party. Well, we are part of EU, so we are, uh, this is solidarity, even creation of EU, yeah? It's based on solidarity and, and Absolutely. work together as a, as a team to create something better, yeah? 
I think the role of the EU in helping people like Miller fight for freedom right here within Europe's borders is so important. And I know we've discussed this issue before, Tom. There has been much debate amongst the member states of the European Union about what to do about other member states like Poland when they pass laws that are in fact in direct contradiction to the values and even the broader laws of of the EU. I I think what's interesting is this comment or this change might spark a whole different debate toward the the legislative power of the EU as a whole. Should the EU have the right and the the capability to to step in if a specific country basically break the rules that we've set as the EU? I don't have the answer, but I'm very curious to hear what you think, Zoe. I think this is raising a very important issue. How much power should the EU have to protect the freedom of individual European citizens, even in the face of perhaps curtailment by their own governments. And, and I think that will develop in time, but it, it's, a, it's a fascinating question. It's a question of law. We'll have to watch the space. And ac- exactly. I think that's the best way to say it is we'll have to continue this conversation in whatever way we can. We now make another stop on our freedom journey today that might not immediately bring freedom to mind, but perhaps is therefore all the more reason to discuss. So I'm referring to an episode that we did with Tay El Rajula, a Bitcoin entrepreneur and blockchain expert. And he explained the crucial role that this technology can play in achieving financial or economic freedom for individuals and indeed societies in which economic turmoil can make financial freedom difficult to achieve. Financial freedom is, of course, closely related to identity. Most of us take our legal identities for granted. By this, I mean a passport, a birth certificate, or anything similar. Tay explained to us how difficult it can be for those born in refugee camps or in war zones to get such documentation. The freedom to have one's own identity is one of the most powerful and fundamental freedoms one can have. And for Tay, blockchain provides a solution to this problem. And he described it as turning invisible children into invincible ones. Turning invisible children into invincible ones came from actually after I lived in the refugee camps in the Netherlands for two years. I saw firsthand what does the lack of an identity does to a person. Knowing that I'm born in Kuwait and I lost my birth certificate during the Gulf War, but I was blessed to have a birth certificate issued for me at birth. During the refugee camp times, I realized that, hey, there's a lot of children who were born during the war in Syria, and there was no documents issued for them. And it was very difficult for the immigration services in the Netherlands to identify and to basically link children to their mothers or to their fathers or to their families even in a a legal manner. So they had to go for DNA tests. They had to go for bone marrow tests. And that, that this was a very costly and long process. So family reunions took months and sometimes years to process simply because of that missing, yeah, legal link. And it's not only important to establish a legal link between the, the child and, and his father or, or her father or her mother, uh, but also to establish it on paper in a transparent manner. I think a lack of identity is honestly one of the scariest things one can experience. And what is fascinating about this is that one's 
identity is also such a vital part of individual freedom. So again, we all take that individual freedom for granted, but without the ability to, say, open a bank account or access the health system, very few individual freedoms are in fact available to us. Yeah, you make an excellent point there, Zoe. And continuing on that idea of taking things for granted is, of course, the topic of faith in the institutions that support and provide us with these documentations that support our society. Many of us, we take the trustworthiness of banks, governments and other public services as a given. But in the next clip from Tay, we hear what happens if that is no longer the case and how important it is to have an alternative option in such situations. In Lebanon, we saw how the banks have confiscated the money of the people. Their hard-earned U.S. dollars and Lebanese lira suddenly where doesn't belong to them anymore. It belongs to the bank, and the bank is support a uh, deficit in the government. So we know that you are putting money in a, in a hand that has an empty hole in it. So we somehow provided people with an alternative an alternative to a devaluating local currency with approximately 85 to 90% of its value is gone. Now there is an alternative where they don't have to trust a bank anymore to save their money, but they do have to trust mathematics, sciences, and the white paper that solved a problem in computer science, a problem in record keeping. I think this is a very interesting and valid point that Tay makes here, Tom. I mean, history shows us that there are situations where national currencies, uh, I think of the Weimar Republic in pre-war Germany or even um, Zimbabwe in the 1980s, times when national currencies devalue to such an extent that citizens may be at risk of losing their savings literally overnight. I think Tay's experience of something similar in Lebanon has provided further incentive for a Bitcoin entrepreneur like himself to find alternative ways to maintain the value of one's hard-earned cash. And although this might seem counterintuitive, because for many people, cryptocurrencies are associated with just the kind of volatility that Tay associates with national banks. I think you make an excellent point, Zoe, and it reminds us that context is so important because it influences our perspective. So for Tay and others like him, Bitcoin provides an alternative to traditional methods of financial record keeping and in this sense gives the power of freedom back to the people. Further into the interview, Tay also explores the power shift that these digital technologies could provide to the Western countries. But these alternatives make it more difficult for governments and banks to track money. And the argument that Bitcoin will simply contribute to the ability of criminals to exploit the anonymity that comes with them is familiar to many of us. But Tay provides an interesting counter-perspective. Listen to how he flips it around in the following clip. I tell always those people, you never check your euro in your hand, in your pocket. <laughs> True. If it has been used to buy something illegal or illicit before. Uh, we just take the money out of the cash, out of our pocket, and we pay with it. If I may quickly interject, Tay, because you're right, is we don't do that, but we also can't do that. But for example, with blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies, is we actually have the ability to do that. So there comes the, the tracking aspect and being able to see these transactions. 100%, but that is not the purpose. The purpose of blockchain technology is not to track transactions and say, yeah, this is a white transaction, this is black transaction. No, it is making transactions accessible for everyone. And when I say everyone, that means everyone. That means terrorists, pedophiles, drug dealers, saints, priests, 
sheikhs, imams, students, mothers, refugees, everyone. Because today the cash in our pocket is for everyone. I think these are fascinating comments, Tom. And what Tay is proposing is, is a radically free way of thinking about money. His focus on the function of money, particularly cash, clearly stems from his own experience of being you know, at some distance from the traditional financial system. Finally, we're moving on to our last frontier of freedom for this episode, and I'm referring to freedom of speech. Sara Musni of the Philippines is a human rights lawyer and an activist who joined us on the show as one of the guests of the Shelter City program that is organized here in the Netherlands. Sarina talked to us about the ongoing struggle that she has against the Rodrigo Duterte government, who have red-tagged her and a number of her colleagues in an attempt to silence their dissent. Sarina explained what red-tagging is exactly and how the so-called anti-terror law is in fact operating outside the parameters of the law. We lawyers always challenge them, even in the Senate, that, okay, you're all always vilifying us outside of court and this places us in an enormous amount of danger to our lives. Bring us to court. Bring whatever your allegations to court because this is where the ultimate uh, fight will be. Bring this case to court. But they couldn't. They wouldn't. And they couldn't because they have no evidence thinking. So people just talk. couldn't stand the rigors of trial. That's why they don't go to trial. They just go around this public free or no of vilification. For me, me, what stands out is the way in which she says, take us to court. It's something that I feel that we've seen throughout the previous interviews, and that is the fighting spirit that these activists possess. I I feel, Zoe, that this isn't the first time that we hear about the, the misuse or abuse of the legislation for this exact purpose. We've seen other examples, such as the, the national security law in Hong Kong by the Chinese, for example. Absolutely, Tom. I think using concerns about national security as an excuse to curtail individual freedoms is unfortunately all too familiar in more than one place around the world. And linked to this is, of course, freedom of the press. Yeah, and within the Philippines... President Duterte decided to not renew the license of one of the biggest broadcasting networks called the ABS-CBN. Listen to Serena as she explains why this decision is not in the interest of the Filipino people. Right after, maybe barely a week or barely a month after the Congress failed or refused to renew the franchise of ABS-CBN, this Dennis Lee, if I'm not mistaken of the name, but it's some Chinese uh, company, wants to take over the infrastructure of ABS-CBN and its license no, to, to operate in the Philippines. So, so then you can still see the Chinese intervention in Philippine politics. There was no reason for it not to, for Congress not to renew its, its franchise. ABS-CBN being the widest, the, the largest network in the Philippines has a really important role in disseminating uh, information to, to the public. Yes, I mean, I think, well, it's a complex issue. And of course, Sarina explains that there are some strange decisions that have been made by the current government in the Philippines. This was clearly one of the stranger ones. Uh, there is a suggestion that there may be some links to the Chinese Communist Party's role in Filipino politics. I mean, I don't think we can get into all of that now. But suffice to say is that once again, 
when press freedom is curtailed, when the largest broadcasting network in a country is their license is not renewed, again, this is not good for, for freedom of speech or freedom of the press. Exactly, Zoe. I, I think you said it best. Is There are so many things that we don't really have the time to get into because there's so much more to uncover in all of these fights. Um, but to perhaps try to at least bring close to this inspiring but sobering discussion on the struggle for freedom, we'd like to share with you an answer that Serena gave when we asked her how she looks towards the future, despite all of the dangers, the difficulties and challenges that she and others like her must still overcome. Uh, as you said, it's a really difficult uh, situation that I am in. On one hand, you would like to preserve. No self-preservation is the key. You know that in going back, you would be faced with either Trump, trumped-up charge or even worse, summary killing. I think I've already mentioned it to you that I was looking for some, some sort of legitimate reason to stay longer. No, But the reality, and it's always good and it's necessary that we accept acknowledge that this is the reality because otherwise we'd be living in a balloon no so but on the other hand in in my heart of hearts i know that if i stay here for stay longer i'd be out in the action scene like (laughs) as a young lawyer i can do so so much help Mm. in these cases Mm. so somehow i i muster strength in that that i am also needed To close, Tom and I would like to dedicate this episode to all of the very brave men and women who continue the fight for freedom each and every day under very difficult and dangerous circumstances. Uh, We want to take this opportunity to recognize the importance of their work and celebrate it because often these daily struggles go unnoticed by many who are lucky enough to live in a city like The Hague where these freedoms are often taken for granted. We hope that you, our listeners, have gained a greater appreciation of the freedom that we celebrate here in the Netherlands on Liberation Day. And of course, if you want to hear more from any of these interviews with the activists, you can find them all on Anchor, where the show notes will guide you to all of the appropriate episodes. We, of course, look forward to welcoming you back, our listener, next week for another episode at the same time. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube.